it's kind of good to know uh, where we're going. We're not going alone, that somebody's with us on this journey. And we're jumping into uh, Luke chapter 7, which it's got to be in the top 10 of favorite stories in the Bible for me. And, um, and so it may be familiar to you, maybe the first time, like I can't imagine hearing this story for the first time today. That's amazing. But as I was studying this scripture, I came across an old hymn that seemed to capture like everything this passage is talking about. I mean, from line to line, it was like, that's unbelievable. Like, that's exactly what this passage is talking about. And um, so I went online and tried to find a recording of this old hymn. Uh, and I found one. And I want to play it for you. So you ready? So, but here's, let me warn you before you listen to it. It's got some language in it that we don't use today. So you have to kind of listen kind of closely and you, you have to use your imagination to kind of figure out what they're saying in this. And then we're going to study Luke 7. So uh, are you ready? So let's go ahead and start the song. I know it's old, but stay with it, all right? Ancient. We're gonna take a little time this morning, all right? A little time to think things over. We're gonna think things over. See, I it's so rich. I better read between the lines. We're gonna read between the lines, discernment. In case I need it when I'm older. We're getting old. <laughs> the groans of the soul. Stay with it. Listen hard. Now this mountain I must climb. Climb this mountain. Feels like the world upon my shoulder. Just a burden of light. Through the clouds I see love shine. Mm. It keeps me warm as life grows colder. Stay with it. In my life, there's been heartache and pain. There's pain in this life. Turn it up. Here we go. Come on, everybody. You got to sing it with me, all right? It's time to let it go. Everybody come together. Loop seven. Yes. Oh, come on. Yes. Light that lighter in the back. Come on. I know you can show me. <laughs> Thank you. I see that. Okay. That could possibly be the highlight of your entire day. In fact, uh, for those of you that don't know that song, just go home and go to bed because you need rest now. But this song is talking about something that we're all very interested in. This idea of love. This idea of that we don't just want to, like, we don't want to hear songs about it. We want to experience it. In fact, I would say that almost everybody in this room, 
your life is going to be measured by how well love flows out of you. And everything we do here at Midtown, you've probably heard this a thousand times, we exist for the glory of the Lord, but we're existing to help you, you mature. And what we're trying to help you mature in is mature in your emotions, and mature in your relationships, mature in your relationship with God, and your maturity with your relationship with this world. In other words, that you would grow in your ability to love others, you grow in your ability to love yourself, you grow in your ability to love God, and actually grow in your ability to love this city. Everything that we're doing is for that purpose, that you guys would just be unbelievable professionals. You'd be craftsmen on living a life of love right here, that, that love is flowing out of you in a beautiful, artistic way. So the question is, where does that come from? Like, do we just learn how to do it better? And what this passage is teaching us is that the love that flows out of us equals the love that's flowing into us. That when Jesus comes into our lives, Jesus comes in to fill our lives with love. In fact, Scripture says God is love. And the way in which God flows into our lives by his love is through our needs. Oddly enough, it's the places in my life that I most need him is the places that his love flows into me. And when it flows into me, it doesn't become this reservoir. I mean, have you ever been to just a stale, dead church that there's just no life there? And it's because a lot of times we take this love and we hoard it and we keep it to ourselves as if that God's love is a reservoir or a cul-de-sac. It ain't that at all. In fact, God's love is like a flowing river. And when it comes in, if it's really God's love that's flowing into you, you tried not to let it flow out of you. Try. Well, it's a painful experience. Because it's like holding back, you know, a tornado. You just can't do it. So we're going we're gonna to study this passage to try to understand more deeply what does it mean for me to let Jesus come into my needs because we're somewhat resistant to that. And what does it mean for that to flow out of me in a way that, well, is as supernatural as the way it flows in? You with me? You want to know what love is? Should we just play that song again? <laughs> that was Foreigner, by the way. And I want you to know that uh, when I was in high school and that song came out and I was in my old VW Beetle, that uh, I literally had put like 12 speakers inside this little VW Beetle and that came on the radio. I wept. I was like, that may be the anthem of my life. I want to know. Anyway. So who's my reader today? Georgia. Hey, come on up. Do you guys know Georgia? She's in uh, Luke chapter 7, and uh, she's going to start reading in verse 36. If you have one of the copies of Luke, we're on page 58. So if you want to turn to that page, and she will be reading through verse 50. Okay. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing, beside, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And wiping them with the hair of her head, she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now when the Pharisee who had, inv who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, um, we start with our need. Our need is for you to teach us, and we need your Holy Spirit for that. Um, we need you, Lord, to hear beyond even what is said, and let your Spirit speak to our spirit. Teach us, care for us, convict us, guide us, rebuke us if necessary. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, what an unusual story that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and after teaching, this Pharisee invited Jesus to come to his house for dinner. And so Jesus agrees to go to his house, and this house probably had a very open patio where the walls were all open so the breeze would come through. And it wasn't just Jesus. There was a lot of people that came over to hear more about this Jesus. And a lot of times they would invite teachers after the synagogue to come to a meal, and they would eat, and after the meal they would debate what they taught about. So Jesus is sitting in this open patio area, reclining at the table. I mean, he was laying down, and his feet was behind the person next to him. And they're eating, and they're enjoying their time together. And this woman comes in who is a sinful woman. She's a prostitute. She came in and made this huge scene of crying and snot flying and, and wiping his feet with hair, her hair and had this alabaster jar, which was a bunch of perfume. So not only is it visually just captivating and just kind of took over the dinner, but now the alabaster jar is broke and there's perfume everywhere. Just changed the aroma of the moment. And Simon is standing off. This Pharisee is, uh, you can almost see him going, I can't believe this happened in my house. And Jesus certainly in a prophet because he would know who she is. And Jesus being Jesus turned to Simon and told a story, and then he does something pretty crazy. He compares Simon to the woman, and he says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. In fact, what Jesus is saying here is there is a formula for us to understand if we want our lives to be lives of love. So let's see if we can unpack it and try to understand it. 
And I'm telling you, this woman right here, this is such a typical Jesus thing. It's like, it's like rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. If you've been in the church long, you kind of get tired of the same story that Jesus seems to find the most broken person. He seems to find the most marginalized person. He seems to find the most unlikely person that you could possibly find in a situation, and that's the person he's going to love on. It's crazy. And when he does, when he loves on that people, and if you've been around, you know what happens, it turns them into freaks. Like it does, doesn't it? It radically changes people's lives when Jesus turns his affection and his love on very broken people. We do. I mean, the Bible, it, it, it's beautiful. It's the word of God, but you can almost sense that it's got a lack of words for, to describe this, this transaction of Jesus loving people and them being radically changed. Because it says things like, the blind, but now they see. And that's not just talking about physical. There, something's happening in a person's life when they were blind, but now they see. It says they were lame, but now they walk. They were poor, but now they've been made rich. And I'm talking about money. I'm talking about something much deeper and more profound. It even says they were lost, and now they're found. And it even goes so far as to radically say people, before they knew this love of Jesus, they were dead. And now that they know this love of Jesus, they are alive. And alive people that have been transformed from broken, messy, marginalized, to now being loved by, by Jesus, they are messy people. They're just messy people. I mean, look at this woman. So her need was unmistakable. We don't know. Everybody at the dinner party knew who this woman was. How do we know? I don't, maybe it was obvious. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it was the way she dressed, or maybe it was a small town. And everybody knew her story. And everybody knew what corner she worked or what brothel she was in. We don't know. Everybody knew her need. She knew her need. It was so obvious. It's almost like Jesus is finding the most needy person and pouring love on them to display that if Jesus' love poured on them can change them, it can change anyone. Ding! Like it's crazy what Jesus does. And what's crazy about her story is historically, if you study it, it's sad. Because at that time, if she was a prostitute, one or two things probably happened in her life. One, that her life got to a point to where it had fallen apart to such a degree that the only option she had to going forward in her life and living, eating and living, was now to become a prostitute and to sell herself. Now, I don't know, think about your own life. What would have to happen in your life for you get to the point to where that's the last viable option you have? To where you go, it's that or death. I don't know what that story would be like. I'm gonna tell you that it's probably a tragic story if you ever get to that point. But the other option, I don't know which one's worse. The other option is that her parents got to that point and couldn't take care of her anymore and couldn't take care of themselves anymore. So probably at the age of 12, they sold her to a brothel. Like, I don't, which is worse, to be completely abandoned by your family and thrown into that life for some coin 
or to have your life so fall apart and it not turn out the way you had planned that it had turned out, and now this is what you're doing. Whichever the case, her need was obvious not just to her, but to everybody. And this story gives us this picture because um, she's already received the forgiveness of Jesus. Like this story isn't she's coming for forgiveness. She's coming as an expression of the forgiveness that he's already given her. And let's talk, let's just pause for a minute and let's talk about forgiveness. Because we use that word in church so much that it kind of loses its power for us to understand what forgiveness really means. You know, forgiveness is, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever done anything in your life that you feel bad about? And, yeah, I'm Michael, yes. Michael, could you come up here and tell us the things that... <laughs> you know why we all laugh? Because he would never do that. Well, he probably would, because he's such a godly man to just open. But we laugh because those things that you feel so bad about, those are the things that you keep hidden. They're not the kind of things that you say at dinner parties. In fact, I'm going to make a guess that everybody in this room has done something that nobody else knows about. Is that popping up in your head right now? Like, we've all done things that have cast guilt and shame on us. We've all, we've all experienced that feeling of doing something that we believe has marked us. We all know what that's like to have failed at something or done the unspeakable to make us feel like somehow or another nobody else in this room has actually done this. Nobody's like me. I'm different from everybody else. In fact, that guilt and shame that we let live in our lives because we think that we're so different and that we're so bad and that guilt and that shame that we let live in our lives and stay there becomes toxic and begins to twist and it begins to change us. I was reading Maude Purcell this week. She's a noted psychologist and she was talking about, she said, in fact, excessive guilt is one of the biggest destroyers of self-esteem. It destroys individuality, it destroys creativity, and it even destroys personal development. She goes, it actually begins to create in our life self-abuse. And when it begins to create self-abuse or beating yourself up about a, a previous wrong she talks about in her book that it actually, it actually takes me back to the very thing that I feel so guilty about. In other words, I feel guilty because I did that and that shame and abuse begins to beat me up and mutilate and toxicity of it begins to devour me that I actually go back to the very thing I feel guilty about just to get relief from it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It almost seems like the secret of my shame is so private and so personal and so painful that the only place that I get relief is when I go back to the very thing that created the shame in the first place. And you know, shame and guilt is a funny thing because some of you may be thinking, well, what he's talking about is addiction. That could be true or some hideous thing, you know, like you killed somebody, which some of you may have. Um, you know, I don't know. But do you know that shame and guilt, 
uh, it doesn't just stay with the Ten Commandments. Like, some of us carry such deep amount of shame and guilt because we deeply believe we let our children down, that we're not good parents. Or some of you live with the guilt and shame that you let your parents down, that you're not what they want you to be. Or you, you're not a good enough spouse. Or you're not a good enough employee. Do you know that some of you feel deep shame and guilt when you use this word? It's like a cuss word. It's not four letters, it's two letters. And it may be the hardest word you ever say in your life. No. That anytime you say no, you feel such guilt and shame because you so conditioned yourself that a really good person never turns anybody down and always lives up to everybody's expectation. And so yes is the word you use, not no, at work or at home. Some of us even feel guilt and shame when we take time to take care of ourselves because we're convinced that our job is to take care of everybody else and ourselves. Hmm. Do you know when, when I get into the cycle to where shame and guilt is actually a part of the air that I breathe, then I start to believe things like I don't deserve to be loved. I'm not important. I'm not a good person. I've failed and I'm a failure. You know, we actually start to tell ourselves, even in whispers, I can't be happy. I'm a loser. I deserve to be alone. Shame and guilt has this unbelievable ability to whisper in our ears, I will never measure up to my friends or my family. I'm not worth the effort of being fixed. And it creates this, like, this is just a little bitty box, but I want you to imagine that's the Grand Canyon. And it creates this massive hole in our soul and our lives that we're convinced nothing will ever fill it up. And Jesus, in the middle of this story, says, whatever your story is, let me double it by a thousand. Meet the woman. And here she is. And what does Jesus do? He moves into her life and he forgives her. And if we had time this morning, I could say, forgiveness is not just cleaning you up. Forgiveness is not just, like, do any of you have brothers and sisters? Raise your hand if you have brothers and sisters. Do you know what love is? <laughs> then have you ever had this with your parents where you your brother or sister did something to you, like punched you at the dinner table, and then your parents said, uh, ask for forgiveness, and they go, forgive me, and then you please forgive me, and they go, now give forgiveness, and you say, okay, I'll give you forgiveness, and the whole time you're pinching each other underneath the table, <laughs> like it's so fake and phony, but you're saying the right words. That's not at all what this is talking about. See, forgiveness is the cleaning up process for the filling up process. Forgiveness takes away the shame and the guilt and all the high king or all the crimes I've committed against the high king of heaven and myself and you. And it takes them all away and I'm, I'm absolved. I've been made clean now. The, the heart has been washed like white and this, my sins have been thrown as far as the east is from the west. 
And if that's where it stopped, what a shame that would be. What a boring life that would be. Then oh, I'm clean, I'm just clean, I'm clean. No, when he, fill, he, when, he, when he cleans us up, he fills us up. And what is he filling us up with? The old is gone, the new has come. What's the new that's come? Forgiveness can't be without new that's coming in. And what new is coming in is the spirit of the living God. He comes in and gives us a new heart. It gives us a new mind. It gives us a new purpose. and comes with all these gifts and with this community and with this purpose and with this call and just floods into us with all this love. And when that happens, we can't sit still. We don't get cleaned up just to be standing here and go, I am clean, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. No, we're clean so that we can be filled up to now we can run. Let me explain. Go back to the story. So this woman is forgiven. We don't know when, where, how, you know, where did she meet Jesus? And Jesus spent time with her and just, my precious daughter, um, I forgive you. And the impact of that hit her and she's made clean and now she's not just cleaned up, she's filled up. And you can imagine her running around town going, where's Jesus, where's Jesus? Well, I heard he was going over to Simon's house. Uh, you mean the Pharisee? Yeah, he's going over there. And so she runs back to her, her brothel and she goes into her room and she finds the only thing that she has value, which is this perfume bottle of alabaster, which she spent a lifetime probably buying. And you know what she, uh, where she got the money to buy that alabaster from? I'll just use your imagination. And yet even those things are now sanctified by the forgiving power of Jesus Christ. And so she leaves and runs to Simon's house and comes crashing the party. And what is the first thing she does? Everything that she has, the only thing of value, she cracks it open and begins to pour it on Jesus. Because the fruit of being forgiven, the fruit of being filled, is extravagant love. It just is. And y'all know that. I mean... Have any of y'all ever been in love? Doesn't it change the value of everything? Doesn't it? Like, like that thing that you thought was so important and then you fall in love and it's not even important anymore. You give it away. Or your time that is so precious. Now you stay up till two in the morning just to talk about life, you know? I remember hearing a fairy tale, this is years ago, of this couple that were deeply in love but they were impoverished. They, had no money, they, they barely had enough food to eat and Christmas was coming and because of their love for each other, they wanted to give each other so much. And the only thing he had was the pocket watch that his father had given him and all she had was her beauty. She had long flowing hair and so she goes into the marketplace and she sells her hair to buy him a chain for his watch and he goes to the marketplace and sells his watch to buy her a brush for her hair and they get there on Christmas and they give each other their gifts. What gifts of sacrifice and love? Have you ever heard that story before? Yeah. It's a horrible example of love. <laughs> Those people had communication problems. Let's just admit it, all right? <laughs> Y'all should be talking about this stuff. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying is that love, when she experienced the supernatural love of God, it expressed itself first and foremost extravagantly. Period. And it always does. The second thing that we see, and this is crazy, 
I mean, some of us wonder if this is even possible in life. But we see it right here in the story. The second thing that love does is she stopped caring what other people thought. Whoa. She crashed a Pharisee's house. They knew who she was. She knew who she used to be. And yet she crashed the party and she made a snot-flinging mess. She didn't seem to care. She didn't stop. She didn't even ask for a towel. She just got her hair down. Just started wiping his feet. We know that's what love is. Have you ever been to an airport? And you're coming out of the plane and you hear somebody, you know, three terminals away squeal, ah, you know, and the person next to you squeals back and they start running toward each other. You know, the lovers that were separated and now they see each other even though it's only been two hours and, you know, they don't see anybody around them and they're kissing and hugging. I missed you, you guys. I mean, we see that. We know that love is not just extravagant, but love loses itself and doesn't care what other people think. And then the third thing here, which this may be actually harder to believe than that love allows me to stop caring what other people think. That love in this story forgets herself. We get over ourselves. We stop caring what we think. We take our eyes away from the mirror and we actually see something that captivates our hearts more than we do, which is huge. I love what Kurt Atkinson said a couple of weeks ago when he preached here. He said, I'm completely addicted to myself. I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. And it's just so true, isn't it? And love actually breaks the curse. And what does she do? She makes a fool of herself. But we know that's what love does. I mean, I was talking to my daughter-in-law yesterday. They've got a six-month-old, and we were just sitting there talking, and, uh, and Charlotte was just kind of looking, just being happy, and then just, just, just threw up all over the place. And Sarah never even, like, turned a beat. She just was rag, just talking to me, and... And uh, I said, hey, you missed a spot. And she just, you know, and she was joking about the fact that she didn't know if she had any clothes that didn't have vomit stain on them. And I said, so what do you think about that? And she goes, I just don't even care anymore. It just doesn't even matter. Why? Has she lost all self-respect? <laughs> no. She's beautiful and together. If something has become more valuable to her than her. Y'all see that, right? That's what love does. Love turns us into people that are extravagant. The value of things change. Love turns me into a place where I quit worrying about what everybody thinks, and love even takes me away from me. And we know that many of you experience that. This church is full of people like that. But in this story, there's somebody else. His name is Simon. If you go back to the passage, we see that Simon was a Pharisee, which means that he was a leader in the church. And uh, Jesus is kind of comparing these two people. And Simon isn't such a bad guy. I mean, if he went to church here, you would like him. Um, I mean, you would. I mean, Simon was a guy, let's think about it. If you were given a choice before this story was read, would you rather be a man who seems to have a lot of control in his life? 
seems to have enough success to throw a dinner party and feed his friends food that has status and his life is pretty predictable. You know, he knows where he's waking up the next morning and who he's waking up with and he owns a home and he has money and he has power. He has prestige. He's religious. He's good. His friends think he's good and he has a good reputation. If I said, you want that or do you want to be a prostitute? You'd probably go, give me Simon's life. But Jesus was pointing out something to Simon that we need to hear. Because Jesus was saying to Simon, your good life, all the stuff that you have are keeping you from realizing how much you need me. In fact, for the woman, it was her sin where she needed me. For you, it's your goodness where you need me. All this control you brought in life, all this management that you brought in life. And this is really serious for us because, let me tell you guys, if you go to church, even here at Midtown, you're subtly going to start to believe that the goal of coming to church is to become a better person. And some of you are really accomplished, and some of you are going to get really good. Like, you're going to be good givers, like, you're going to be a good attenders, like, you're going to dress right, you're not going to burp in church. You're going you're to be great, you know? And Jesus is saying, caution, caution. Because is it possible that your goodness is going to get in the way of you needing Jesus? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, Simon, you need my grace as much as the woman does. She just knows it. You don't. Because Simon had become self-righteous. Simon had become confident in his own goodness. Simon was so confident that he was better than her that he was convinced that God is more for him than he is for her. It's called self-righteousness. Let's, let's talk about self-righteousness for just a second. Self-righteousness is that idea of having a critical spirit or a condemning attitude toward others. Or having this, some of you have this spiritual gift that you can find something wrong with everything. Like it doesn't matter, restaurants, people, work, here. Like you can find, you just, it's like radar. You can find something wrong with everything. You know, a self-righteous spirit is an unteachable spirit. It's the spirit that always holds itself back, even like when you come here. We'll see. Because you really believe that you know what needs to be known. A self-righteous spirit is a prideful about your obedience. You're prideful about your knowledge of the Word of God, your knowledge of orthodoxy and your experiences. You know, you know. Self-righteousness is self-oriented, it's self-focused, has a lack of compassion for others. Do you know that self-righteousness is even displaying itself in self-pity? Poor as me, because we know that shame is, is pride's cloak. And in your self-pity, it's just pride. Self-righteousness displays itself when we're masters at justifying our sins, where I justify my sin and hold you accountable for yours. Self-righteousness is always comparing myself to other people. Do you know that self-righteousness often displays itself in constant disappointment in myself? And what I mean by that is even in my faith, when I repent, the emotion that I'm feeling in my repentance is really an emotion of disappointment. 
I'm not repenting because I've sinned against God. I'm repenting because I told myself I was never going to do that sin again, and I'm deeply disappointed in me. I expect better things from me than that. Self-righteousness often displays itself as jealousy of others, or you're easily offended, or you're unforgiving when people hurt you because you have a right to be treated better than that, or taking things personally, or living by a double standard that you have one set of rules for yourself and another set of rules for everybody else, or caring too much what people think about you. I'm pretty confident that at least one of those hit everybody in this room. Because what I want us to see is that we're not just the woman, we're also Simon. That's true about both of us. And the warning that Jesus is giving us here is, hey, if, the, if my knees are the place where Jesus comes in to give me his love to fill me up so that I can love others, be careful that you don't start living your life as if you don't have any needs. In Luke chapter, uh, uh, let's see, where is it? I think it's 17. There's a story, you can go back and read this. This is a story of the Pharisee and a tax collector, and they come into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee is going, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, that you've set me on a higher standard. And the tax collector is coming in and going, God, have pity on me. And Jesus is displaying the two to say, if your self-righteousness makes you better than other people, it's getting in the way of you receiving what God has for you in the midst of your needs. So back to Luke 7. Jesus says to Simon these haunting words, Simon, do you see this woman? And of course he didn't. But I think what Jesus was saying to Simon, of course you can't see her because you can't see you. And because you can't see you, you can't see her. So what is hope for us in this? Here's the hope. Do you know in, in 1 John, it says we love because we're first love. Meaning, this right here, that the love comes in, it's outside of us, it's a foreign thing to us, we receive it, and then we love. We take what's been given to us, and then we use it. Because that's true, we know that long before this woman came in and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears, Jesus washed her feet. Somewhere in this woman's story, Jesus washed her, her feet. And we know this because for Jesus to forgive her, it meant that Jesus had to go to the cross, that his love was extravagant. His love was a love that set aside what everybody thought was appropriate. His love was the kind of love that even forgot himself, and he saw her. That's why in Matthew it talks about that we're the treasure that Jesus goes to find and sells everything that he has to come and buy the field so that he can have the treasure. That's the Jesus that we serve. And Jesus is just simply saying to her, if you will trust me, I will wash your feet, and as a result, you'll go out and freely wash the feet of others. So I remember being in a grocery store, this was a few years back, and in front of me was a lady that was checking out with food stamps. And her cart, she had a bunch of kids, and the kids are crazy, and they're just bouncing all over the place, you know? And I could tell she was struggling, and, and she's, getting, she's paying it out, 
and realize I don't have enough money to buy what I put in the cart. And she didn't have a bunch of stuff in her cart. And so she's looking at the, the cart and she's giving that to lady, take that out. And then what's our total now? Now take this out. And there's a line of people and you can just hear the people behind her going, Ugh! and they're calling out to God, Jesus, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm watching this. And you want to know what's going through my heart? I don't ever want to be in that position. Never. I never want to be the guy holding up the line because I got a, I got a few things and I'm broke and I can't take care of my kids. I want you to know at the heart of your pastor, I would rather wash your feet than let you wash mine. Jesus asked me to climb the, tie, the highest mountain and tell me that's what love is instead of asking me to break down and say, here are the greatest needs of my heart. Are you kidding me? I would rather meet all the needs of Jesus and go to my death as a martyr than to live a life where I go, Jesus, I need you deeply in every part of me. Come and wash my feet, Savior of the world. I did what you would do in that line. I just told the lady at the register, just get it all to her. Whatever she can't pay, I'll pay for it. I felt so good about myself when I left that, that grocery store. And Jesus nailed me to the wall. He said, why do you feel so good about yourself? Guys, it's our goodness that often shuts us up from our needs of Jesus. Therefore, shutting us out of the love that God wants to pour into us. Therefore, shutting us out of access to the love that he wants to pour out of us. So we're about to worship. We're about to worship. And I'm going to ask you, would you be kind to yourself and let Jesus come and wash your feet in your goodness and in your brokenness? In all the ways that you think you don't need him, and in all the ways you obviously do need him. Because in this story, Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much, loves much. Who needed more forgiveness, the woman or Simon? Both. Just one knew it and loved much. You ready? Let's worship. Lord, we pray that you would be kind to us now kind to let us get past our goodness and just groan with our need for you. We pray, Father, that you'd give us courage to be honest about our brokenness and let you come and wash our feet so that we can be those that are counted among the redeemed, those that are extravagant, not caring what others think and even forgetting ourselves and being great lovers because we know what love is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.